Hey, welcome to the Healthful Woman Podcast, the fastest growing podcast in women's health. Today's Monday, August 28th, 2023. Last week and this week, we're focusing on fetal growth restriction, sometimes called IUGR or intrauterine growth restriction. It's a common concern in pregnancy where we think the fetus is measuring smaller than we would expect. Last week, we redropped a podcast, Simi Gupta and I did in 2020 on this. And today, I'm going to be joined by Dr. Mariam Nakvi. Mariam is a maternal fetal medicine specialist practicing in Los Angeles, and we worked together for several years in New York City. Mariam is both an expert in the diagnosis and management of suspected IUGR, but she is also someone who had suspected IUGR herself when she was pregnant with her first. So she's going to be giving her personal and professional reflections on this important topic. All right, bunch of reminders. First, if you're listening on Apple or Spotify, please do rate us, preferably five stars. Please do leave comments. Second, please send us questions you might have for our mailbag. We recorded our third. It's going to drop in September. The more questions you send, the more mailbag podcasts we're going to do. Again, to send them in, you can email us directly at hw at healthfulwoman.com, or you can go to our website, www.healthfulwoman.com and click on the link that says send us your questions. Also, if you'd like to pre-order the book, Emily Oster and I wrote The Unexpected. We have a link on our website, so please take a look at that. Finally, as Labor Day weekend is coming up, reminder to all of you who might be pregnant patients of our practice, we are moving hospitals. So as of September 1, the place to be is Sinai West. All right, thanks for listening. See y'all next week. Welcome to today's episode of Healthful Woman, a podcast designed to explore topics in women's health at all stages of life. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Fox, an OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist practicing in New York City. At Healthful Woman, I speak with leaders in the field to help you learn more about women's health, pregnancy, and wellness. All right, Mariam, welcome to the podcast. It's so good to have you as a guest. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. This is so exciting. I get to, A, I get to speak to you, which is nice, just straight up, which is wonderful. And all the way in California, it's, uh, we miss you. We miss you out here. Oh, I miss it all the time. I mean, it's nice to be back home, but those years in New York together were a blast and I learned so much and it was just great to get to know all of you so well. It's good. So for our listeners, you are Dr. Mari Nakvi. You're an associate professor, good job, of OBGYN and MFM <laughs> at Cedars-Sinai in Los Angeles. So how's Cedars-Sinai treating you? It's fantastic. It's great. I, I, I always tell people I went from one Sinai to another. You know, <laughs> was that Mount Sinai before? Now I'm at Cedars-Sinai. It's been really great. It's funny because I always think of myself as a Californian, but I spent so much time on the East Coast, you know, when I was in Boston and then New York, that it was still a transition coming back. But I can't complain about, you know, the lovely winters here. And, you know, the medicine is pretty much all the same, so. <laughs> Babies still come out the same way on the West Coast as the you East know, Coast. You know, they really do. They, they really do. <laughs> remarkable. The consistency of, of humanity, it's, uh, it is remarkable. Biology, it's the same. So tell us a little bit about yourself. You mentioned California, but like where you're from originally and you know how you went through your, your medical training. Sure. So yes, I, I grew up in Northern California in the Bay Area. Um, I 
actually went to college at UC Berkeley, which is only relevant because ultimately ended up doing my residency at Stanford and I'm still very much a Bears fan. But let's like let's let's rewind. I just thought like the Cal Stanford thing is very, very important to make clear right from the bat. <laughs> okay. Noted. Duly <laughs> <So> noted. <laughs> for all my fellow CalBears out there. But yeah, I did medical school at Irvine. Um, so that was when I first moved to Southern California, back up to the Bay Area for residency. And then I did my fellowship um, in Boston at Massachusetts General Hospital, which right. was the first time I you know, lived on the East Coast. And that was just such a tremendous experience. And I got to work with amazing folks out there and then stayed on the East Coast. And my first job out of fellowship was with you all you know, at Maternal Fetal Medicine Associate. So thanks for that. Thanks for hiring me. <laughs> but that was such a great experience. I mean, you all know it's such a, it's a busy practice out there and we take care of such a diverse group of women and really passionate about doing research when I was a fellow and, you know, especially with work through you and you know, Andre or Barbara, we got to continue to do that um, while working together in New York. So that's sort of, that's how I ended up there. And then I had my first baby, Rayla, when I was in New York. And that kind of was a big part of what brought us back to California because our, you know, both my husband's family and my family are over here. We got a little bit nervous about, you know, all the, the, the sort of our, our new chapter in life, taking care of the newborn with pretty much no family around. So uh, we, we came back to California and I've been at Cedar sinai ever since. Amazing. Now, we did sort of plant a seed in you when you were at Stanford because we sent our emissary, yeah, your Blumenfeld to Stanford uh, just to, <laughs> yeah. you know, to have him focused on the West Coast to sort of talk about us and say how wonderful we are. And that, that's, I, I, think we, I think we pay him a commission. And so we're getting a lot of Stanford <laughs> people showing up, knocking on our front door for, for jobs and fellowships and whatnot. Did you, obviously you, you worked with Yair, did, did you hear about like New York and Mount Sinai from him? Did he tell the, the tales of this, the psycho stuff going on out here? Yes, he very <laughs> much did when we were residents. Um, and that was one of the things that I knew of him when we first met. And, and, and actually that's probably one of the first ways I actually heard about your name. And then you probably don't remember this, but we met first at my, I think it was my first year fellows retreat. That makes sense. I can't remember they, was that were they in was it like upstate New York or it was in know, it I was think? either in on the Palisades, technically I think it's technically New Jersey. Okay. Or it could have been in Chicago. It was in two places around around that time. Oh, you know, maybe it was in Chicago. Oh gosh, now I like I can't even remember. But that's actually when we first met because we were assigned to sit at a table together. Oh. And I I mean I knew you, but you didn't know me because you were already very big time. <laughs> Um, and, and, I was and, I was a big I was a big time loser in that room. Let me tell you, so not true, so not true. In fact, even when I was you know, telling folks that I was going to do this podcast, all I had to say is, you know, I'm going to get to do a podcast with Nady Fox. It's like, oh gosh, Nady Fox. Like we all know Nady Fox. Everyone knows Nady Fox. Oh, dear. So yes, <laughs> that oh, was dear. the first time we met. Well, and then what made you come all the way? to Mass Generals? Is it just because you could tell people you went to Harvard? Is that really like, that's it? <laughs> just just that reason? Or was there something that drew you specifically to come all the way out to Boston for fellowship? That's a big, I mean, it's a big deal, right? You see, you're born and raised in California, did undergraduate medical school, residency, it's all in California. And now you're going literally across the country to Boston, just so you could put Harvard on your, on your CV. 
You are hilarious. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. That was a perk, but not at all the reason that I decided to get it. You know, it was, well, A, let's remind everyone that it is a match with them. And I was very, very lucky to, to end up where I wanted to, to go. But I, you know, when I was applying, Yair actually was a huge mentor to me because he, it was funny at the time, I remember asking him, okay, like, where should I apply? And then he gave me a bunch of programs. And then, you know, when I was trying to make my rank list, you know, kind of hoping he was going to tell me, hey, maybe you want to like, you know, put Stanford up there. <laughs> but he, you know, he advised me when I was a resident to, to really try to train somewhere else. And he, he, and it was the best advice I ever got. I mean, I, having been at different places for, medical school, residency, fellowship, and now even practice. I mean, I just think you get such like a balanced and often sort of practical view of what medicine is like. And you kind of realize there's so much nuance to what we do. And a lot of it matters, but a whole lot of it doesn't. And, you know, so I, I think that was, that was really what kind of drove me to even apply out of state. And then when I was looking at programs, I, I, I did kind of it's places right to have some extended family or some version of that. So it wasn't totally, totally foreign. And in Boston, I do have a bunch of cousins out there. And, you know, it was, it's like, it's like dating. Like we interviewed, it, it clicked. I got along, you know, really well with the faculty there. And many were doing work that I was interested in. So, I mean, the chemistry just felt right. And I was lucky enough to end up where I wanted to be and was the right decision again. And I don't know if I, I don't remember, I'm sure I asked you at the time, but then why did you come out to New York? I mean, was it just because of the, the glory of working with Andre Rebarber? Was that it? <laughs> well, you know, we were at the time, you know, I wanted to stay, I wanted to stay on the East Coast and I was looking primarily in New England. And again, I, there was, some of the drivers were places where I did have family and it was very similar. You know, I interviewed up with you guys. It was a really nice kind of mix of being really busy clinically and getting to do research. And I think for that first job at a fellowship, I mean, it's fun. It's easy for me to say this now because I'm on the other end, but being really busy those first two years, I think helped, you know, a lot because there's a lot of skills you really want to solidify and certainly that practice is a busy one. So I think, you know, it's just, it fit a lot of things that I wanted and geographically it just worked out. Yeah. I mean, listen, I, I agree. I, I always tell people that I learn more in the first year in practice than I did in three years in fellowship. It's just, there's so much, but you know, going problem to problem, patient to patient, like, you know, topic to topic, you're just knee deep in it. And there's nothing like that, that you get in fellowship. I mean, residency, you're really busy, but going into practice is so much more rigorous than your fellowship. Fellowship is usually kind of fluffy. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And it's, you know, sometimes it just, well, I don't know. I, I, I was very grateful for my fellowship and I know we're all doing the best we can, but it, it, yeah, it doesn't really reflect a lot of the time yeah. what we're doing as clinical on the time. Yeah, no, I don't mean fluffy like in a bad way. I mean, like 50% of your time is research. And so you're, you're sitting at a computer right. or you're doing charts or you're, you know, and that's, it's great and it's important, but like when you're in practice, it's, you're a hundred percent busy and doing it. the same thing. Also, even clinically, you're just, you're talking, you're giving lectures, you're going to you know meetings. There's a lot of stuff in fellowship that you don't 
really do in practice or you don't have an opportunity to do in practice. But I can say, since we're both on the other end of it, we loved you immediately. Thought you were awesome. We're happy you worked with us. It was great. We were very sad when you left us, but we understood. But we do appreciate that you've definitely, again, it, it's like we sent another emissary out west. You sent us uh, Farnas Kia, which was great. Yes, she, she's awesome. Yes. And, you know, Samantha Doe came from Stanford, another Yat Yer, right. you know, uh, recruit. And so we're very, we're very pleased with this outpost we have <laughs> in Northern and now Southern California. So it's pretty cool. So, wow, that's great stuff. Now, currently, what kind of work are you doing at Cedar Sinai? Like, are you busy doing deliveries? Are you sitting in the lab doing bench work? Like, you know, what's what, what, I mean, I know the answer to this, but our listeners don't, but what are you doing day to day? Sure. No, I, I do a little bit. I do a little bit of everything actually quite similar to what I was doing in New York, but maybe a little bit more time um, with teaching and research. So, you know, if I kind of split up my work, I spend most of my days in the ultrasound unit doing ultrasound on pregnant women, doing procedures, CBS, and amniocentesis, and consultations. And then, you know, the other hat is really the education piece. I'm the clerkship director for our medical students that rotate over here at Cedars. And so we have lucky enough to have the UCLA medical students come spend uh, four weeks with us at a time. And so I run that clerkship and get to do a lot of fun things with them. So it's a really uh, cool part of my week. And then I work really closely with the residents and our fellows. And um, we have a fellowship here. And so uh, part of what I do is mentor them through their research projects. And I'm on the labor floor once a week. So every every Monday, I'm, I, I'm it. If you show up at Cedars and, and, and don't have a, a Cedars doctor, you're stuck with me. And, and that's really a fun part of the week because, you know, I, I do love deliveries and part of being an MFM, you know, these these jobs kind of vary from practice to practice and, and, and some groups like like yours, right, do a lot of deliveries and get to stay really clinically active on the labor floor. And then there's others that, you know, haven't done a delivery in like 20 years. So that part was really important to me to keep that part of my skill set up and it's still probably one of the favorite parts of my job. So I do that about one day a week. That's awesome. It sounds like a really good, that's a good job. I like that. It's a good balance. Yeah. All right. Well, you know, weather's good. All right. We'll, we'll, we'll talk offline. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sorry everyone we're going out west it's <laughs> it's going to be like on Grey's Anatomy when everybody went from New York to Seattle for whatever reason they went right, out there right, we're, right. we're moving so when when we were in touch about topics other than just catching up you mentioned IUGR intrauterine growth restriction or fetal growth restriction and you mentioned it obviously it's a very interesting topic it's an MFME type of topic it's very common but also you have some personal experience with this I do I do so you know well as you very much know my first daughter Layla when I was um, pregnant with her in New York she was had suspected growth restriction or small for gestational age or I guess whatever you want to call it which was diagnosed around gosh, now you have to think back, but probably 28 to 30 weeks. Initially, she was always measuring a little bit small. And for, I guess for our listeners, I'm not the, the largest gal eater. I'm a pretty petite person. So I expected my kids to also be on the smaller side. But she was always kind of in that 10th to 20th percentile range. And, you know, we really get worried about growth restriction when it follows, follows maybe under the 10th, probably further than that. And then probably around 30 
32 weeks, 32 to 34 weeks, you dropped to under the 10th percentile. Ultimately, actually, it was under the first percentile. I don't know if you remember this. And around, I think, probably 34 to 35 weeks. I mean, you may have even read my scans. Remember, I had my ultrasound done. Remember, it was at, it was at our 90th Street mm-hmm. location. And I had patients that afternoon, and I had my ultrasound, and it was like every number on that screen was reading less than the first percentile, like just from the top to the bottom. <laughs> and I remember I was like, I think I'm going to need to go for a little walk before before my afternoon. Because I was really, it was, I mean, even knowing what I know and knowing that everything else on that ultrasound was really, really reassuring. She was very, really small. So yeah, I remember, I just remember I went to a little French restaurant actually across the street. I don't, is that still there? <laughs> the restaurant across the street? I don't know. There, There is yeah. a restaurant across the street. There's a different one. So I'm not sure if it's the same one. I was really worried about that one during COVID. But in any case, I remember <laughs> I walked over there. My husband met me for lunch. And we, 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 I got this cauliflower soup and I was like, gosh, she's actually real small. And <laughs> I know she's fine and, you know, they told me the fluid is okay and really healthy otherwise. I'm really short. <laughs> I'm like, it's going to be okay. But yeah, I was really worried. And, you know, uh, anyway, fast forward, I've been delivered at 38 weeks. And of course, it was a totally fine delivery and she did great. And she's now four years old and 50th percentile for everything. Actually, she's kind of on the taller side. So she's well, probably a, a tall, tall and medium skinny, I guess. But size-wise, it's not been an issue since probably like three months. Mm. And 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 she's fine. So, so it, you know, it was the reason we're, you know, going back to topics like, a, like you said, you know, fetal growth restriction, FGR, IUGR, it's such a common thing that we all see as maternal fetal medicine specialists. But I will say that having kind of gone through that process, it, it definitely has, Culford, I guess, how I counsel patients now, you know, when I see them in the office and some of the questions that I used to kind of not have like the best responses to because I, I didn't really know practically what all of it really meant, you know, I think that, yeah, going through it really helped that a lot. What, what was her birth weight ultimately at 38 weeks? She was four pounds, 11 ounces. Yeah, little, little tiny thing. And who, who delivered her? So it was Lisa Jackson. Oh, uh, um, yeah who is just down the street from our office and, but not without calling in some buddies from our practice. I don't know if you remember the details of my labor court. No, but, I don't. You know, I was induced at 38 weeks and then the induction went fine. And then like when I was around like I think nine centimeters dilated, you know, we monitor all of our uh, babies continuously in labor. We monitor their heart rate and my wife's heart rate was, I mean, it was just dropping over and over and over again, having deceleration <laughs> repetitively on the on the fetal heart monitor. And Risa was thinking, okay, you know, you're, it's been nine for a little bit. The tracing is getting not so great. You know, we're probably going to have to move towards the C-section. And I was like, okay, whatever, fine. You know, whatever you think is best. And you know, it was five in the morning and I, I called Bender. I called Dr. Bender. <laughs> and I think, or maybe I called, I definitely texted Rebarber or texted Bender, but right. they both showed up. Can you, like, co- can you come and bring a pair of forceps with you? <laughs> I, just, I don't know. You know, I just felt like I needed like my like extended family around or 
something. And one of them must have been assigned to the labor floor that day anyway. I'm trying to like make it sound better. and, and Trying like to make that, yourself but, sound better yeah. than, than <laughs> texting in the middle of the night. Please help. <laughs> totally. So yeah, I definitely, I was like, and I don't even know why I called them. Like, I don't know if it was, did I want them to like, is this with the section? Did I want a second opinion? Did I just want someone to like hold my hand? I don't know. I was just like so freaking out. But they came and I remember it was, it was actually just so nice to have everyone around and like, yeah, you're fine. Everything's fine. Like, you'll push this baby out. It's not going to be a big deal at all. And even Lisa was like, yeah, I've been so chill. It'll be all good. And then I think I like pushed her out like the next hour. I pushed her 40 right. minutes and it was a really uncomplicated delivery. So. so so small mom, small baby and three tall doctors. Because Lisa's like, yeah, Lisa's yeah. like, Lisa's like an athlete. She's like, you know, she's like six feet tall. It's like, so it's like so terrifying. You know, she's like, it's crazy. It's, it is, I will say parenthetically for our listeners, when, when you said that you're not a, a large person in our practice, we used to use NACFI as a unit of measurement. So when we were describing a person, we would say, is she like 1.5 NACVIs? Is she two NACVIs? Is she four NACVIs? I would say like, my right leg is one NACVI, you know, and it literally just, it's like a, a pound or a dozen or whatever it is. We just had a NACVI as a unit of measurement because you were oh the God. smallest one we I, had. I, I was, yes, I have not thought about that in a so long time. It still happens. Right. You know, I have, we still, it, we still, at Thursday morning meeting, someone will still say like, yeah, you know, she's like, like two knockfees. And someone will be like, what the hell are they talking about? You know, <laughs> what is that? Is that Our British? Probably like, what? <laughs> what? What is that? <laughs> Where we, you know, we have strange traditions that we, that we maintain. Listen, I, I, you mentioned sort of the, the fear. I, I'm trying to get a sense, you know, hearing about fetal growth restriction can obviously be very scary for the patient side because, you know, we tell people usually everything's fine. And occasionally yeah. it's not, right? Which is, right. that's unsettling, obviously. I, I want you to go a little bit into that when you said that even though you sort of knew it was still like concerning, how how much of your thoughts were, I know what's going on. I do this every day. She's going to be fine versus, oh my God, I've seen when this can go wrong, right? Because it, it could go in either direction. Having the experience and knowledge can make it a lot better than average or it can make it a lot worse than average. Which way do you think it went for you? Right. You know, it it seriously depended on the day of the week. Like I would say it was like 90-10. Like 90% of the time, I knew it was going to be okay. You know, I was being seen twice a week, you know, to make sure the fluid around her was okay and her heart rate was fine and all those kinds of things. So, you know, I, I would say most, and, and you know, I we see this clinically all the time. So, that part of my brain was the dominant part, but there was definitely like 10% of the time I, I did, I did think about the scary things. And for me, it was more, you know, I was, I was mostly concerned about, you know, she's really small. It's going to probably have to go to the, the neonatal ICU or the NICU and I'm going to have to get separated from her. And gosh, is this going to impact breastfeeding? And, you know, it, it, I was really thinking a lot of like those types of things. And maybe less so of the more serious complications that can happen. But, you know, it's, it, all those things kind of crossed your mind. And I think I was, in a sense, I'm glad I was more reassured than not. But, you know, I'm human. And sometimes you're, you know, it's like, I, I remember being pregnant and, and seeing patients, right, who are in similar scenarios as you are and sometimes don't have the best outcomes right in front of your eyes. And you're just, 
you know, I remember I would just have that thought like, gosh, oh yeah, like that could happen too, you know? And so I would say a little bit of both. Okay. Were you the type of person who has an OB and an MFM, were you micromanaging your own care or are you someone who's just able to like let go and give it to others to take over? I I think, I don't know. (laughs) Maybe you need to ask my doctors. I think (laughs) that I don't, I didn't micromanage that much. I mean, I did, you know, I, I do remember knocking on your door and asking you if I should deliver earlier. And you said, no. And I said, okay, bye. <laughs> no. So, <you> know, <laughs> so I think that's a pretty good patient. I, it's, I guess it's easy for me sometimes now, especially when I have kids too. Like, I don't know if this is how you are with your kids, but I don't know. My like medical knowledge goes right out the window when I take my kids to the pediatrician. Like it's sort of like, just tell me what you think. Tell me what I need to do. And it could be as simple as like a common cold. And I just need someone to give me their advice. And I think when I'm a patient, which now I have been three times over with my three kids, I, I do get more into that role. So I, I just, I guess I don't trust myself. Let me put it that way. I'm worried I'm going to make the wrong choice if it's myself because I'm just going to be so biased by all kinds of things. So no, I think I'm a pretty good patient. I usually listen to what they tell me to do. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I mean, I, my recollection is is you were, you were pretty chill despite you know, everything that was going on. So I don't like, I don't have any recollection of being like, man, well, she just like butt out of her own care. Like I, nothing, <laughs> nothing like that, uh, which is good. With my own kids, my own care, I, I would say generally I am hands off. Like, you know, when my wife was pregnant and we were having kids and I was mostly, I was far less trained, you know, I was in med school and then I was just in the beginning of residency and even in fellowship, I was pretty hands off. And that same with my kids, but I would say that's not, necessarily because I would always be that way, but I just trusted, I trusted her doctors. I trust my kids, pediatricians, meaning for me, if, if I've sort of come to the realization, this is a doctor I trust, I'm a totally good button out, you know, like whatever you say is fine. You know, if there's a choice, let me know. Otherwise, whatever you say, I'm good. But if I'm sort of engaging for the first time, like if you're in an emergency room or if you're at a new doctor, I'm always a little wary of like, do I think this person knows what the hell they're talking about? And usually it's yes. And I've been mostly pleased, but every now and again, you're like, "Eh, maybe we should do something else. And that's tough, obviously, because, you know, you don't want to be that that person. But on the other hand, you also want to be savvy and realize if if they really are an expert or if they have your best interests in mind or whatever it might be. You know, it's tough. It's hard. Right. No, you're so right. I totally agree. Because like, as you're saying that, I'm thinking of all the time that I just I'm like, oh gosh, if anyone in my family like listens to this, they're gonna be like, are you serious? Like yours is like the worst when you see a new doctor, which is true. I mean, you know, I, I don't even know if I told you about this, but you know, when Layla was three months old, I I had a car accident. I was hit by a drunk driver and right near Stanford, actually. Oh, I did and know I this. Was the first- yes, I did know this. Yes. And it was like the first time I had left my house. Literally, I was picking up a car seat from a friend. That actually, yeah. I just had dinner with Julie, Julie Romero, <laughs> who was one of our other back. The other partners. one who fled like to my, California. Exactly. <laughs> it was like mom's first outing. And so I had dinner with her and was on my way to go grab a car seat from a friend's house. And then it was hit on El Camino Real by a, a drunk driver. I was taken to Tanford, but I still remember being in that ambulance and they, they wouldn't give me any like pain medication. I actually had bro- broken my wrist and broken my clavicle and it really hurt. <laughs> and I was like, like, well, like maybe you just want to like, wait, we can get an IV. And I was like, 
Like, <laughs> give me something stronger. Like right now, I'm fine. And they were like, "Well, I mean, that you had said that you're because they, they they do do a quick history." And they they asked me if I, I I told them I was breastfeeding, and they were so nervous to give me medication because of this. And I'm like, "Are you? I'm like, clearly I'm not breastfeeding anytime soon. Right, I'm, I'm not doing it right now." <laughs> So was, I, I, gosh, I feel really, really terrible. I'm sorry to whoever was in that ambulance, all those <laughs> paramedics. I'm super grateful for your care. But yes, I do remember being pretty like directive. With what I'm a maternal fetal line. medicine specialist. <laughs> Give me my damn morphine. I'm, yeah. Totally, yeah. <laughs> Same in the emergency room. I, 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 you're so right. You know, when you don't, you're meeting someone for the first time and you don't have that established rapport yet, then I feel like yeah, sometimes being a physician patient, you know, I don't know, you kind of like, <laughs> you got to feel it out a little bit. And then I think that's when my medical brain definitely does turn on. Yeah. And, and then conversely, when it, but you know, a doctor, I trust and know kind of takes the backseat. And it's the same way also, like if you're a doctor and the patient comes and one of them is a doctor, it changes the whole conversation. And again, you, you're sort of balancing. You want on the one hand, not assume they know anything, right? You don't want to, because they they might not. So you start from the beginning and you work your way up, but you also, the other hand, want to like acknowledge, like this might be a review for you, or I'm sorry if this is basic for you, but we're going to work our way up. And it's just a very different dynamic, which is always why, I kind of feel like people just walk in the room and say, all right, listen, I'm a cardiologist. You know, like, let's just put it all on the table there. Because occasionally you go through the whole thing at the end, they're like, dude, I'm a trauma surgeon. I'm like, oh, thanks. Right. You know, like, Why are you telling me now? <laughs> <laughs> we have this thing called a scalpel and we use it. <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 right. Gosh, yeah, definitely. I love when it's on, on the table because you can, it doesn't even have to be medicine, you know? Sometimes yeah. you just have like a, you know, like a, a researcher in genetics and you're about to talk to them about, you know, genetic testing or whatever it is. People come with so many different backgrounds and you never know, you know, what their expertise is. So, yeah. Yeah. It's a good thing to feel it out. (laughs) So, so I want to get a little bit into growth restriction itself, you know, because we definitely want to talk on that. We, we did a full podcast on it years ago with Simi Gupta. And so, you know, we can refer to that also. So we don't have to cover everything here, but how would you just explain to our listeners what it is? Like, what are we talking about here? What's going on with with fetal growth restriction or IUGR? Right. So, you know, I think it's actually for as common as it is, it, it, it's sometimes I feel like a challenging thing to discuss. I mean, you know, what we what we were worried about with fetal growth restriction, which is something that we diagnose really by my ultrasound. And so kind of think about it. Most patients are having an ultrasound in the first trimester and most patients are having an ultrasound at somewhere between, you know, 16 to 20 or 18 to 20 weeks for an anatomy ultrasound. And then many patients who are, you know, I guess, quote, lower risk may not necessarily have an ultrasound, right, for the rest of their pregnancy. But, you know, in the, in the, your OB provider's office, probably keeping an eye on the size of the baby, whether they're measuring the belly with a little measuring tape or you're getting ultrasounds in the ultrasound unit. And what we're really screening for is, is the baby measuring appropriately. And that can be both extremes, like maybe measuring really, really big or measuring more than average. And so, you know, the definition that we kind of use for, I always like to say suspected fetal right. growth restriction. I agree. You know, because it's fetal growth restriction kind of, it implies there's a pathology, right? Like it implies there's something wrong. And the reality is most babies that are measuring on the smaller side 
don't have anything wrong, right? They're just on that part of the curve. So Right. They're just one they're just one Nakvi. They're just one Nakvi. That's it. There you go. There you go. Exactly. <laughs> so yeah, we, we typically use the definition of the tenth percentile. And so we, what we do is we by ultrasound at least we take a bunch of measurements of the baby, of the head, of the abdomen, of the femur bones. Those are an equation and then plotted on on some established growth curves and gosh even that's a whole other that's a whole other podcast episode right because there's right. so many different growth curves for you. but if, if the if the overall fetal weight estimate is measuring under the 10th percentile then we sort of run with this diagnosis of possible or suspected growth restriction and then a lot of what we do in the ultrasound unit or at the you know OB office, it's kind of trying to determine whether that baby is under the tenth percentile, but probably that's fine and measuring smaller, and or is it that baby that maybe isn't sort of meeting their growth potential because of some other issue going on, whether it's you know the placenta is not at its like optimal state or is there a maternal disease like hypertension or lupus affecting you know the size of the baby or maybe there's something intrinsically wrong genetically or there's a there's a birth defect you know there's a lot of different things that can sort of cause like true like pathologic maybe growth restriction so i think you know when we when we first make that diagnosis in the office it's kind of doing an initial workup to get as much information as possible and i would say most of the time that workup is normal I mean, right i mean most of the time we we do, we do a full fetal assessment and maybe mom doesn't really have medical problems and or just we just have this number that maybe the baby's at the seventh percentile and then we kind of use a few ultrasound markers to help us determine whether their overall uterine environment is a safe one yeah wow what a good explanation see very good you, you've lived, you lived it, you talk. No, I, I listen, I, I say the same thing. There's a lot of terms and that's part of the confusion. There's fetal growth restriction, which is sort of a lot of people use instead of intrauterine growth restriction, though they basically mean the same thing. But like you said, right. both of them, the word restriction implies like something is wrong. Like there's a problem happening. The baby's supposed to be X, but it's smaller than X. And that's sort of how we think of growth restriction, but technically all we're doing is saying your baby looks small, right? So some people say right. small for gestational age, SGA. And so that's probably more precise to say, all right, your baby's measuring small. Again, we're also not even weighing the baby, we're measuring the baby. So we could even be wrong on the weight, but let, you know, let's assume we're right. right. And the baby's small, most small babies, they're like small adults, they're fine. Like, you know, if someone is right. thin or someone is, you know, not tall, that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with them. They're just, there's a variation in human size and there's a variation in fetal sizes. And sort of the art is trying to figure out which of it are we talking? Is this a normal small baby or is this a baby with potential problems? And if so, what are we going to do about it? Because those problems, some of them can have a lot of implications in the pregnancy or beyond. And so it's sort of like we're trying to, on the one hand, tell people we've identified a possible issue and be very thorough about it, but on the other hand, not scare them to death. And that's a tight, right. that's a tight balance. Since this is something we do every day, and it's obviously something you do every day, how does your personal experience of going through it sort of color how you talk about it with people? Like, do you tend to be more peppy positive because you went through it that way? Or do you tend to be a little bit more cautious because you know what it could have been? Uh, you, you said that it, it, it colors how you talk to people. I'm curious how. 
You know, that's a really good question. Thank I, you. I, that's, I, that's why this podcast is we're, we're you know, we're killing it because of these tough questions, like 60 minutes here. This isn't softballs. I'm, I'm throwing, I'm throwing hundred miles an hour at you. I, you know, it's hard to articulate. I would say it's, it's a little bit of both. I, I, I do. Well, I, I do tend to be more on the positive side, but I think that I'm probably more positive when I, I mean, I genuinely think it, it, it's probably okay, you know, right. and, and, and there's going to be things, there's going to be things specific to every specific case, you know, that may make you, you feel one way about it or another. So certainly for, you know, we, we sometimes divide growth restriction into, you know, like early onset growth restriction, right. Mm. Or, or late onset growth restriction. So, you know, these early cases that are more like prior to 32 weeks and then the late cases after 32 weeks. And so I would say, you know, especially patients that are diagnosed closer to term, you know, not very severely growth restricted with otherwise really reassuring findings, which is actually pretty analogous to what I experienced, taking away that it was the less than the first percentile. You know, I would say I'm pretty positive about it. And and I you know, sometimes I even share my experience. Yeah, and, I was gonna you know, ask you how often you do is that something you do routinely or just if they it's based on the person? Yeah, you know, I don't do it routinely and I, mostly because I don't know. I mean, sometimes I'm kind of, especially if I think of myself as a patient and I'm like, gosh, I don't want to sit here like hearing what my doctor's birth experience, like I'm here freaking out, you know, like I don't really care. But but so so I, I, I do it very sparingly, but, you know, I, sometimes if it just seems like a, it seems appropriate and it feels like I, I it might actually be reassuring to a patient who you know, is really, really worried. And, and, and most of the factors are reassuring. The thing is the caveat to all of this is, is none of us are fortune tellers, right? I mean, we can, we have, we got numbers, we got statistics and here I have some personal experience too, but we can't predict what the outcome is going to be a hundred percent of the time and be right a hundred percent of the time. So, you know, we, we always, I'm, I'm, I have caution, I guess, when right. I counsel and, and, and even when I'm optimistic, I mean, I remind my patients that there's a reason why we're doing the testing, right? I mean, yes, all the outcomes, um, I mean, most of the outcomes are generally good. I mean, statistically speaking, right? I mean, I usually say that 70% of babies that are measuring or actually even born under the 10th percentile have completely, completely normal outcomes, like no NICU admission, go home with mom, normal follow-up. And so that number is, you know, some people hear that and are like, oh, wow, that's great. And others hear that like, what? Only 70%, you know, like that means like 30% and it's something that happens. So everyone interprets those numbers a little bit differently. I guess that's like a long-winded, complicated answer to your question. But I, I think I share my story when I, when I think it may be beneficial in some way to the patient. And, and, and the way that actually not even just the growth restriction part, maybe it's just having had kids or just being a pregnant patient. A lot of the practical questions, I think sometimes I, I feel more prepared to answer, I guess, you know, and then people ask like, oh gosh, well, does this mean that the baby's automatically going to go to the NICU or does this mean I'm going to not be able to nurse or something like that? But I think I have hope. I don't know if I would have been able to answer those questions as well before maybe. And, and now I feel a little more comfortable. Yeah, I mean, different, like you said, some patients do connect with their doctor's own stories. Other patients want none of it. And yeah. both are totally understandable. Like different people are comforted by different things. And it's, you know, sometimes you got to sort of figure that out, like what they're looking for uh, story-wise. But I mean, yours, 
Yours wasn't exactly run of the mill because those percentiles were so small. Like most people who are in this boat, so to speak, the percentiles are generally between like three and nine. And most of the time we're pretty reassuring. The ones that are under one across the board, even though, yeah, probably it's going to be okay. We're always a little bit more worried. And that's why, you know, twice weekly and delivering a little bit early and all this stuff. It's so, yeah, I mean, would you, if you were your MFM, right? If you saw someone just like you under the first percentile and all this stuff, how cautious, how scary would your counseling be? Right. Cause not run of the mill, but sort <laughs> right. of like, Oh, this is well, hello. And a pretty yeah. small baby. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think I tend to describe sort of the outcomes and, and the possibilities as they are, you know, in right. reality. And, and I think those are actually probably the patients that I, I do think sometimes it helps to like be a real live human right. <laughs> in that scenario because, or sometimes when the baby's measuring a little bit bigger because then you're sort of like, well, you know, sometimes these four or five pounders actually do fantastic. And and then sometimes they don't. And this is sort of like what the spectrum kind of looks like. So, yeah. I mean, I think I'm, I'm definitely, I'm very honest. And I think that's the most important part is to kind of describe what the worst case scenarios kind of look like and, and then reassure that most, most moms are not going to end up with a baby in those worst case scenarios, but it's always possible. And I think knowing that it's on the radar usually makes sort of the experience a little bit less scary. Yeah. Now what, what happened with your, your other kids? Were they small? No. So, you know, the second one, Sasha, my second one, the girl, and she was six, 13, which sounds not that big, but that's two pounds bigger than my first. That is big. That's so like a, that's like a that, half and a half. There you go. <laughs> and then the, the, the youngest, my baby was a boy. He, he was seven, four, seven pounds. So they got, they got bigger and bigger, which wow. is, you know, the funny thing is I, I don't remember, but like my first pregnancy was, I mean, you know, my first time moms, you're super responsible. I was like eating, that was healthy. And I was, <laughs> restricting my caffeine and, you know, I was working out regularly, but not too much, especially when the baby was starting to, you know, measure a little bit small. And I just thought I was like, that was the perfect patient, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then measuring small. And, you know, just out of like time limitations and being busy and chasing around a toddler, I was like the second two, I kind of, you know, was right. maybe not like that as much. Took, and, up, took up smoking uh, and ate chocolate all day. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I definitely had a lot more tea. You know, I'm like an avid tea drinker, and I would I was really careful of like not going over, you know, like the limit for the first one and the second and third. I just I needed to stay awake. So, and then you know, I thought we better revisit some of those caffeine studies. I'm telling you, it yeah. just got bigger and bigger. Yeah, I, I, I'm, it's it's the New York California thing. You know, New York, it's just a very stressful environment, and everything goes wrong. And in California, you guys, it's all chill. Everything's great. There's sunshine. Oh, everyone's laid hilarious. back. You know, it's just it's wonderful. Go figure. Wow, Mariam, oh, what's this? Awesome. Thank you so much for telling your story and talking to me and hanging out with us on the podcast. I really appreciate it. It's great to catch up. And I think it's great for our listeners to get to know you. And hopefully you'll decide to move back to New York and we'll we'll get to work together again. Well, thank you so much for having me. <laughs> yeah, I know. I thought that's what we were talking about. <laughs> Either or. I'm whatever. It's all good. It's all good. Whatever. We'll figure it out. You know, you, there's lots of years. You really got to visit at least. I mean, there's so much to do here. Don't, I mean, the winter is coming. What are you going to do in December? You can't 
spend your December in New York. It's going to be so cold. Oh, I just like to stand here and be cold. It's wonderful. So <laughs> I'm from Chicago. So the winters here are not not particularly oh, concerning God. to me. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's mild. Yeah. <laughs> beautiful. All right, Mariam, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Healthful Woman podcast. To learn more about our podcast, please visit our website at www.healthfulwoman.com. That's H-E-A-L-T-H-F-U-L-W-O-M-A-N.com. If you have any questions about this podcast or any other topic you would like us to address, please feel free to email us at hw at healthfulwoman.com. Have a great day. The information discussed in Healthful Woman is intended for educational uses only. It does not replace medical care from your physician. Healthful Woman is meant to expand your knowledge of women's health and does not replace ongoing care from your regular physician or gynecologist. We encourage you to speak with your doctor about specific diagnoses and treatment options for an effective treatment plan.